0: So as I notice, and as I think we've all experienced, that as we walk through a yearly Bible reading plan, things often begin very, very well. Everything starts in Genesis. Genesis is familiar. Exodus is exciting. But starting around February and March, the New Year's resolution of Bible reading kind of becomes next year's resolution because you hit the book of Leviticus. That's what I often say. Leviticus is a struggle for a lot of people, and you have all these sacrifices, and how do you make sense of them? And it's a lot of technical language. At least that's what we think it is. And and we're just confused and frustrated, and, and so we just give up, and we just say, better next year. Well, you do realize that by a year after year of this repeated cycle you'll never get through the Bible because you and you'll really know Genesis and Exodus very very well. That's what ends up happening. But let's say you survive. One year by the grace of God You have gotten through the book of Leviticus and you're so excited that you have survived. You want to buy yourself a t-shirt that says, I survived Leviticus because you're so proud of yourself. You feel good and you feel good as you read through the scriptures until you reach to the prophets. Yeah, Samuel talking about David and such. And Saul, that's that's not too bad. The kings, there's a lot of them, and they're all mostly bad anyway, so you can understand that. And you got the judges, and you got Ruth, and she's nice. And so you make it all the way through all those, but then you hit the prophets. And the prophets to you are a problem, because They're speaking poetry, they're speaking things you don't understand, they're making predictions, and and you're wondering about that. They're talking about other nations, and you're wondering why they do that. And so by that time, which is about, I don't know, say toward the mid-spring time, you give up, and you say, well, I got here over 10 years of Bible reading tries, 10 more, and maybe we'll make it through then. And let's say you do, you struggle through it, then by the end of the Old Testament, you hit the minor prophets. And you think, well, they're minor for a reason, so maybe I can just skim through them. And that's often what we do with our Bible. We don't always read and study it, we often skim over these books. We know that they exist We know that they're there. We know them in some kind of generality, but that's about it. Any kind of detail, any kind of foundation, any kind of framework, any kind of particular implication and application that stems from these books, we don't really know. We just know that they're there. We know that they exist. We know that God has them there. We just don't know why. We skim over them. Now, the question is, what makes these books So much harder to understand than other books of the Bible. What makes Genesis easier in our minds than Leviticus? What makes Zechariah harder than, say, Matthew? Well, Why is one harder? And often what we say is, well, those books, those books of the Old Testament particularly, those books less covered, the road less traveled, they're they're just not as clear. They're, They're just not as perspicuous in our minds. Let me caution us here. In America, we equate simplicity and easiness with clarity. But that's not necessarily true. We think that things that are clear, they have to be easy. And things that are easy, those are the things that are clear. But that's not necessarily true. That's just a marketing tactic to get you to buy things. That's not actually objective reality, if you stop and think about it. For instance, cooking book A recipe can be clear. It can tell you step by step how to do it. But for people like me, who can't even boil water or use a microwave, it's not easy. But if I said, this recipe, because to me it's not easy, is not clear, that's not true. It can walk you step by step through something. The problem is not with the recipe. The problem is with me. Likewise, there are some people in this room that love math. They love numbers. Those things and those symbols delight their soul every day. They get a joy out of seeing how God has worked through mathematics. That's great. There are other people whom God has designed totally opposite. And they, when they see a number, they tremble in fear. And they, you know, plus and minus, they can handle that. But anything beyond that, it is just terror and frustration. We understand that this can be a reality, and so they open a math book, a calculus book even, or geometry, and they look at it all, and it says find X. And they say, and they just circle it and say, it's right here. I found it. That's it. Fine. However, no one can just say because it's hard, therefore the math textbook isn't clear. It could be very clear. It could walk you through every single step possible. It could articulate everything in a simple fashion without any ambiguity it can do that but we still don't necessarily understand it we still have trouble deciphering it not because it's unclear but because it takes a little bit more effort on our part let's be clear the bible is clear through and through Don't ever think, oh, I just can't understand this because the way it was written, unclear. No. The clarity of Matthew is the clarity of Joel, which is the clarity of Leviticus, which is the clarity of Zechariah. They all have the same clarity. They're all equally clear. But for some people, certain books take more work on their part than others. Do you see the difference between the two? And so what I want to do right now is to help us get a boost. Sometimes to do the hard work, if somebody kind of helps you along and helps do some of the legwork for you, that will enable you to actually do the same amount of work you do on other books and they're all exactly with the same kind of clarity and therefore you can gain the same kind of insight. After all, the books that we traverse less, they are all edifying. They're all part of scripture. And when we don't cover them, we're missing something. We're missing something. God has ordained every single book in this Bible. God has made every book different. There are no two books identical. There was no plagiarism within the scriptures in that sense. It wasn't just a copy and paste job between one book to another. There are differences, there are distinctions, there are usages, there are nuances. Books are different, and therefore, each book is unique, and therefore, each book makes a unique theological contribution, and therefore, each book makes a unique practical contribution. If you don't know your whole Bible, you're missing something. You're missing something. Your spiritual diet is deficient. Your spiritual diet is deficient. And so we need to cover and recover that which we have been missing. That which we have been missing. Every book is edifying. And let's see now what we've been missing. And really, a lot of all that we're going to be talking about is and revolves around the question of why. Why, why does God want this book to be written? Why does God have for us this text? Why does God say this? Why does God talk about this What does this say about God? And once you understand why a book is written and why the book fits together the way it does and why it has the language that it does, then you can go from there. Then you have a foundation to move from. Then you have a platform to jump deeper into the scriptures. Then you have a framework by which you can study. And so there's no way you can cover Different books of the Bible exhaustively, even in the time that we have. Not even one book could be covered exhaustively. But if I can give you the why behind different books and show you how to walk through the book, that will give you the best starting point so that you can move forward in your own personal study and gain what you might have been missing. Now, you might be asking the question, well, how many books are we going to cover? Well, that's a dangerous promise. I have no idea, more than zero, less than 66, that's biblical, maybe eight if we're good. But if we don't get eight, it's okay. Hopefully, and my goal in this is that everything would be edifying, but let's see if we can't hit eight. That's really ambitious because in my calculation, that's like one book every seven minutes. But um, hey, let's just try. So here we go. Here's number one, Leviticus, Leviticus. I figured that let's try to do one big hard book like Leviticus and, and get you through February of your Bible reading plans so that you can continue on and at least get to David and then maybe we can help you along with some other things. So let's talk about Leviticus and the theme of Leviticus is God's holiness. In fact, Leviticus, if you really know how to read it, And you really have the strategy behind it. It's one of the most devotional books ever. It's one of the most devotional books ever. It's actually a very important theological book. And as such, it is a devotional book because what it tells you, what it tells you about is one of the most important central subjects of all times. And that is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. That is the theme of the book of Leviticus. In the background of the book of Leviticus, well, what book comes before Leviticus? Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, what we see is that God has delivered his people. We know that part. We know that God, with ten plagues, miracles, and signs, and wonders, has saved his people from another nation, the nation of Egypt. We understand that. And we understand that he's given them even the law to demonstrate and exhibit not only thankfulness for such salvation, but to exhibit that salvation itself, how God is a saving God and who he is. But we also understand within this that Israel is sinful and that the deliverance from another nation, as powerful and mighty and effective as it is, is not good enough. You say, why isn't it good enough? Here in Exodus is the lesson. You can save somebody from all the political oppression, societal, economic danger. Deliver them out of all of that so definitively that they're their own nation and then they end up in the wilderness, they worship a golden calf, and they die. What does that show you? Physical deliverance is never good enough. Physical deliverance in God's economy, in the way that God works. It matters. God is about that. God uses that for his glory. He's going to show that he can overcome all things. True, but that cannot be it. Because once you're physically delivered, if you are not delivered from your sins, you will still die. So you need another exodus you need another deliverance. In fact, that's what God promises in Exodus 34. He promises that he will once again do signs and wonders. Well, when's the first time he did it? Well, like 10 chapters before, 24 chapters before, or something along those lines. And he will do the Exodus again. But this time, it won't just be a physical Exodus. It will be a spiritual Exodus. It'll be the perfect Exodus. Why? Because it won't just be physical deliverance. Will it have that? You better believe it. But at the core of it will be a spiritual deliverance. One from your sin. That's what you need. That's what you need. And Israel understands their need for spiritual deliverance. Israel understands the need for the resolution of sin before God based upon that alone, but it becomes accentuated at the end of the book of Exodus when God's presence comes down into the tabernacle and no one can draw near to him. The priests are even expelled from the structure because they are wicked and God is holy. And so now the question becomes abundantly clear. You need spiritual salvation. You cannot dwell with the holy God. This is a problem. So how do a sinful people dwell with the holy God? How do you have spiritual deliverance? The book of Leviticus shows us how. The book of Leviticus shows us how. That's what Leviticus is all about. It is a book about God's holiness. It is a book that shows you how to satisfy God's holiness and the standard of God's holiness. Now, within this, There are kind of two things, in addition to the background that I've just given, that I think help people as they read this book. One is this, that Leviticus is a model. It's really a hands-on model. That's what you have to understand about this book. It's a hands-on model. Put it this way, actions speak louder than words. Sometimes we want God to just spell out for us all the theology for us, and there is place for that, and there are reasons for that. But Leviticus wants to teach you these things by a hands-on demonstration. And so the instructions... They're very physical in nature. This is what you do. This is how you do it. This is what you do next after this. This is like the recipes for sacrifices, so to speak. That's what you're looking at. And as you go through it, you begin to learn by the physical actions and the sequence that they're in what God is doing what God is demonstrating, this is a hands-on model. And once you understand that this is a hands-on model, that this is about actions, and actions speak louder than words, and that's what's supposed to be happening here, then Leviticus makes sense. If you read Leviticus, more like you read a barbecue manual, then, and, and you add some theology to it, then it's very edifying. It's very clear. There's no problem. If you read it like you're trying to read an epistle, I can understand why you would be confused because you don't read a barbecue manual like you read an epistle. Now, having said that, that's the first thing. It's a model. It's a hands-on model. But second, as a hands-on model, here's a question I often receive and people are confused. They say, do the sacrifices of the Old Testament save people? Do the sacrifices of the Old Testament save people? And let me put it this way. I don't want to get into any financial debates, so please, this is just an analogy, not an endorsement. Let me say that again. I don't want to get into any financial debates. This is just an analogy, not an endorsement. But if you've ever used a credit card or known somebody who uses a credit card or read about people who have credit cards in their lives, let me ask you this. Does the piece of plastic buy anything truly? You say, oh yeah, it does. When you swipe it, you get the stuff. Really, you pay for it then? You paid for it right then and there. Yes. Then why do you get a bill? You get a bill because you haven't paid for it. That's why it's called a credit card. Yes? Because somebody had to give you a credit. That stands in contrast with a debit card where you swipe the plastic and it's debited. It is taken out of your account immediately. A credit means that by doing an action, somebody is trusting that a payment later on will be made. There's a reason when you swipe a credit card, technically, if you stop and think about it, it's credited to you. And if it wasn't credited to you and you just took something without paying for it, there's another word for that and it's called stealing. Now you didn't steal anything, please don't put that on your conscience. There is an agreement that later on there will be a payment made. There will be a payment made. But the magical waving of a card, a piece of plastic or carbon fiber or whatever, actually doesn't do anything in and of itself. It's all because of a payment later on. In the same way, do sacrifices in and of themselves forgive your sins? Never have, never can and never will. But what it is, for those who do it in faith, that there will be a payment that satisfies what God is teaching through this model, through actions speaking louder than words, those people who trust in God, it is accredited to them as righteousness. And that is exactly what is talked about in the book of Romans chapter 3. God counts it as righteousness. He passes over sin because of these sacrifices, because they were resting upon through this mechanism, a greater sacrifice. That is what is going on here. There is this book of Leviticus is hands on. It's a model. And as a model, it points to what is original and what is original and what is ultimate. That's the real payment you're trusting in through what you learn about in the model itself. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. So let's talk about the book of Leviticus and understand it better in light of all these things. And here's some things to think about. One, the first 10 chapters of Leviticus are about sacrifices, about sacrifices. And here's what's fascinating about them as you read them. One is that most of the sacrifices are not for sin, There are five major sacrifices of the Old Testament, five presented in the book of Leviticus. And out of those five, only two are about sin. So that means three are not about sin. And you say, what are they for? They're about worship. They're about worship. And if you understand what each sacrifice signifies, then, and I apologize for this in advance, but then it kind of works like in and out from there. Have you noticed that in and out you can combine secret, you know, all Californians know this. People like us who are from outside of California who move here, we learn about the secret menu of in and out And we learn that you can do all kinds of things, and they have all kinds of creative ways to make their limited ingredients go even further and more deliciously. Well, in the same way, the Old Testament takes these five sacrifices and mixes and matches them in different combinations to tell you theology, That's what's going on. So if you know the basic five, then you can figure out basically almost anything else because you've got the theology behind them. So here are the five major sacrifices. The first one is a burnt offering where the whole offering is burnt. It's not hard to remember. There aren't creative titles here. They're just pretty simple. So the burnt offering is where the whole offering is burnt and it shows one's dedication to God. Why? Why? Because just as it is all burnt unto the Lord, you are showing you want to be so dedicated to the Lord. Fair enough. Second offering is the grain offering. Why grain? Well, because grain was often cultivated in the land of Israel. And so to give thanks to God for how he provided and how he took care of them, they would offer a grain offering. The third offering is what we call a peace offering, also known as a fellowship offering. Guess what it's all about? fellowship. It's thanking God that we have a relationship with him. It is an offering by which the person who offers the sacrifices shares a meal with the priest before God. It's all about fellowship. It's all about fellowship. So we have dedication. We have thanksgiving. We have fellowship. Then you have two other offerings. Like I said, those last two are about sin. Hence, the fourth offering is called the sin offering because it's about sin. This isn't too difficult, like I said. Okay, this is this is not rocket science. This is the sacrificial system. So this is the sin offering. It's about sin. And the final offering is a guilt offering. And you say, what's the difference between a sin offering and a guilt offering? The guilt offering includes times when restitution has to be made involves times when repentance deals with how you sin against God or your neighbor in a way that has injured them, and part of repentance is making that right. And so restitution, uh, guilt offering, deals with that combination as opposed to a sin which does not necessarily require restitution in some kind of economic fashion. And, and it is interesting, and just FYI, do you remember Isaiah 53 where our Lord is a Suffering servant is the suffering servant, and he offers himself in substitution for us. It says this that he would offer himself as a guilt offering. Did you hear that? The Bible chose those words carefully because what's the maximum kind of sacrifice that covers sin and everything beyond that? It's the guilt offering. It's not just that he was a sin offering, that would be true, but he's also the what? The guilt offering. Why? Because he dealt with sin and its consequences. He dealt with sin and its consequences on the cross for his people, for those who are in him. And so the technical language of the Old Testament matters because the guilt offering means something. And when Jesus is called a guilt offering, that means something. So you got the basic five. Now, just to show you how to put something together, for example, in the sin offering, it will say this, that the high priest when brought with an animal, lay his hands on the animal, lean into the animal, confessing Israel's sins. What is the idea? That by leaning on the animal, the animal becomes the representative. It is how you're trusting in that sacrifice. You're relying on that sacrifice. And the animal is bearing the weight of that guilt of, of, of your sin. And as a result of that, when the animal is killed, God's wrath Is satisfied. There is a penalty involved. There is justice involved. There is wrath involved in that. You're killing something. That should tell you about the nature of God's holiness. That should tell you about the nature of God's holiness. And within that, it says this, that the priest then should then offer the animal as a burnt offering and retain part of the animal for a peace offering, You say, why? Because after you kill the animal, yes, your sins are forgiven. God's wrath has ended. But now it's not just about removing sin. It's about being right. It's both and. Think about the nature of justification. Justification isn't that you're just declared innocent. It's that you're declared righteous. And so in the sacrificial system, in the process, Yeah, you got to deal with sin. We see that. And then you offer it to show burnt offerings, demonstrate that you are dedicated to God. So now you dedicated your life to him in righteousness. And then you have a peace offering offered. Why? Because now you have peace and fellowship with God. Does this not sound like Romans 5, 1 a little bit? Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. How did Paul get that progression? Well, that progression is locked in to the very way that God satisfies his holiness in salvation as depicted, actions speak louder than words, in the book of Leviticus. That's what's going on here. Walk through the steps. See how the basic five sacrifices are being knit together to communicate a theological process and a theological procedure and message. And there's a lot of theology there. There's a lot of theology there. And there are strict rules for the worshiper and the priest. Why? Because, and this is important, the way you become holy must be holy. That's what Leviticus 1-10 through testifies. The way you become holy must be holy. You can't just do the sacrifices any which way you want. You can't just go about salvation any which way you want. It has to be done God's way because it has to satisfy him and he is perfect and he has a perfect standard. So you cannot just go arbitrarily through. And the classic example at the end of Leviticus 10 or at the end of this passage in Leviticus 10 that demonstrates this is Nadab and Abihu. They offer strange fire. What's strange fire? It's simple. It's fire that deviates in any fashion from what God prescribed. You say, how could you make fire deviate? I mean, fire is just fire. Well, it was done in a specific way. Incense with a specific mix in a specific process. You mess up one step, it's strange fire. And what happened to them? They became the sacrifice. That's what happened to them. You don't offer the right sacrifice, you become the sacrifice. Because God has to have a sacrifice to satisfy him. So it's you or someone else. And Leviticus 10 is a reminder. Worship and the way you become holy must be holy. And that's what's being emphasized in this. There is an immensity to the holiness of God. And Let's keep talking about it. Chapters 11 through 15, ceremonial cleanness. This is talking about how one might bathe and how uh, one might be unclean by touching unclean things. And you say, why does God talk about that? Because God is not just holy in the way that you become holy. God is holy in the optional things, even in the gray areas, even in things that are not inherently moral sin or not sin. He is still holy. That's why the language of clean versus unclean is used as opposed to the language of right and wrong. Think about this. And I relate this to college students who can definitely relate. And I say, let's pretend you didn't shower for a month. Some of you were not pretending. Just kidding. We're fine. We're fine. We're fine. But let's pretend that happened. And you had a girlfriend or you had a boyfriend Do you think the girlfriend or boyfriend would want to give you a hug? What would they say? You're not clean. Now, is there anything inherently immoral about not showering for a certain period of time? Not necessarily. We might in our culture say it's not very loving, but there's nothing necessarily inherently immoral. It's not breaking a explicit biblical command, but we would say that makes you unclean and that creates distance in the relationship. And here's God's point. God says, if you want to draw near to me, it's not just about doing things that are objectively right and wrong his way. That's a given. It's even in the gray areas you please him. It's even in the things that are not explicitly stated, that we have a disposition toward holiness. And that's in how we even garner ourselves in the happiest of times, with birth, or in the most private of times, or even in death. All of those things, and whether whatever we eat or drink, all of that has to be done to the glory of God. All of it, and that's what Israel understands. It's in the mandatory things, you must be holy. It's in the optional things, you must be holy. And if you stop and think about it, that's a lot of holiness. That's a lot of holiness, because it's the holiness in everything. It's exhaustive. And on top of that, and this is something we should realize about the sacrificial system, it only covers unintentional sin so far. If you look at Leviticus 4 and 5, it'll say over and over, if someone sins unintentionally, you say, what does it mean unintentionally? It means unintentionally. It means you didn't do it on purpose. It means it wasn't part of your mind. It just slipped out, so to speak. There, if there is a premeditated sin, it's not covered by the sacrificial system. And you say, wait, that's a problem. Yeah, the problem's not new. Israel would have realized there's a problem. In fact, God knew there was a problem. That's why he said it. Because how many sins in our heart have been done beforehand? We thought about it, we premeditated it, we contemplated it. It was intentional. It's not hard to find those. And you say, but are those covered? The answer is no. Any of them covered? No. Well, then how do you cover them? You don't. Already you begin to see wait a minute, we need something more. We need something more. Well, that's why chapter 16 exists. It's the sweet 16 of Leviticus, and that is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16. And in this ceremony, Israel gets a reset. But they get a reset every year. And this already is a problem. A very big problem. Because what happens if you sin the day after the Day of Atonement? You're not covered for the whole year. Do you see the issue? You need something more. The Day of Atonement matters because it resets Israel's entire system, because it shows that Israel not only has a clean slate, but everything for their life is on a clean slate. And it happens, but it happens once a year. And they need it to happen perpetually, because they understand how deep their sin is. Do you understand how Leviticus is modeling what you really need, what you truly depend on? You need a sacrifice that isn't just once a year or that can cover you for the day. That You need a sacrifice that is once and for all. And that's what Hebrews talks about. That is so definitive that it is once and for all time and you are totally covered and there is no gap and there is no deficiency whatsoever. That's what we really need. And so the Day of Atonement points to that. On top of that, Israel's system, though, is meant to teach, and it teaches us the importance, say, of blood. That's what Leviticus 17 is about. As you've been hearing, you have to have blood for the the shedding of blood, for the remissions of sins. We see that in the sacrificial system. We see that in the Day of Atonement. Well, Leviticus then gives Israel specifically to teach the world actions speak louder than words, some important instructions on how they're to handle blood so that they show people and explain to people how atonement and sacrifice works. Leviticus 18 through 20 talks about holiness on a personal level. By the way, if you really want powerful devotional reading about what it means to be holy before the Lord in your personal life, read Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. One of the most devotional passages on that line. It not only talks about how to apply the Ten Commandments into your life in very specific ways, but even, even talks about things like how you should treat the elderly, how you should treat your sister or brother, how you should treat the fellow Israelite, how you should think about God. All of these things are in Leviticus 19. It's very, very practical, but all of it is meant so that Israel would show the world This is the holiness of God. This is the standard. And this is how you satisfy him. The priests, those who are set apart to God, they must be holy. In fact, well, why not? There is a, we might, we don't really have the time, but we'll make the time. So here we go. There is a law in the priestly regulations that say this, that the priests for no reason can tear their clothes because they are set apart to the Lord and should not grieve in the way that the nations do and should not desecrate The holy garments that God has given them. The set-apart garments that God has given to them. Now, you say, okay, I understand that. That makes sense. People should be holy even in what they wear. And, And I get that. Fine. Think about the New Testament. When Jesus is on trial, what does the priest do when he hears that Jesus says he's the son of God? He what? With his clothes. He tears his clothes and says, you blaspheme. What's the irony? No, Jesus isn't blaspheming. Who's the one who's blaspheming in that moment? The priest. He's broken the law that shows he has desecrated what God has given to him. He is the worst hypocrite of all. And really, as you'll see in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, who really is on trial? It's not Jesus. It's Israel for treason. That's what's going on there. Any case, priestly regulations carries a lot of implications on life because we are a holy priesthood under the Lord 1 Peter 2 but also even unto the New Testament there's ceremonial regulations about how you set your calendar because even your time is supposed to be holy unto the Lord there are societal regulations where All of Israel together and what they do together needs to be holy. Sometimes we think, oh, holiness is just about my personal life. That is true, but it's not just about your personal life. It is also about what we do as a corporate body together. That too must be holy because God cares about everything being holy. And so Leviticus 24 and 25 shows what Israel does as they interact with each other and how they celebrate festivals together. All of that must be holy blessings and curses. Of course, if we sin against the holy God, then he punishes. That's part of his holiness. But here's what's fascinating. In Leviticus 26, it says over and over, if you do not repent, then I will increase your punishment still more. What is God after when he punishes his people? He's after them to repent. The design of punishment is not just to show you that God is holy, it's to inculcate in you a holiness. It's to discipline you unto holiness. That's what Leviticus 26 says. Well, if we've talked about so much that holiness belongs to the Lord and everything is unto him, then it's fitting that the end of Leviticus is about vows, isn't it? Because the whole point of a vow is something set apart to God. And if God has made life so much set apart to him, if he is so holy, since he is so perfect, any promise you make unto the Lord, we should keep it because it's something dedicated to him. It's something set apart to him. It is something that is holy unto him, and he is truly holy. The book of Leviticus is a book about the holiness of God through and through. In the way you become holy, in your lifestyle holiness, what you do privately, what you do publicly, in things mandatory, in things optional, it is all about holiness, and it's a points to God's ultimate resolution of holiness in a once and for all sacrifice unto himself. This is a devotional book. This is a necessary book. How do we defend that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place to satisfy God's wrath? We say it starts from the very beginning. It starts from the book of Leviticus. Well, there are some other books we want to cover. Praise the Lord, we got through one. So, Mission Accomplished. Here's another one, the book of Obadiah. Turn there. From this point forward, we're going to be in the minor prophets to help make them more major because they're really not minor in the sense of significance. They're really major in the sense of significance. And Obadiah is a majorly important prophet. The theme of Obadiah is God's vengeance. It is God's vengeance. And let me provide the background. I had a mentor who once said that the book of Obadiah is a bitter battle between brothers a bitter battle between brothers. What you're looking at here are two twins, Jacob and Esau, and their subsequent nations, Israel and Edom. And God, to show his elective power, to show his power of sovereign choice, he takes twins and he says, one will have one destiny and the other one will have another destiny. Twins are so similar, they're so alike you would expect them to be basically the same. What and who makes the difference in their life and in their children's life and on an international scale, that life, God. And so God, to demonstrate his sovereignty, he takes two that for everyone and every thought and purpose, everyone would think are identical and he makes the difference between their identities. In that regard, and God makes that promise, that the older will serve the younger, that Israel will triumph over Edom. That's a vital part of his promise. And it looks great, and throughout Israel's history, they see that until this moment when Obadiah is written, because the moment Obadiah is written, Israel has experienced its first major defeat by Edom. And they're wondering, God, did your promises fail? God. What are you doing? I don't understand. I can't see it. God, do you even care? We've been, our, our people have been killed. Our cities have been pillaged. Do you care? And Obadiah, this small book, the very first words of it are the vision of Obadiah God, the people of Israel wondering, God, did you see what's going on? We can't see and understand what's happening. And God says, let me show you a vision. Let me help you see what is going on truly, fully. God is at work and God has vengeance. Sometimes we don't, we don't really care for the doctrine of God's vengeance until you actually need it, until you actually see the terrible things in this world. And you wonder, God, are you going to do anything about that? Obadiah is a book that says, of course God does things about that. God will take care of every single kind of wickedness. God has that character of vengeance. He does care enough for his people to have justice on their behalf. God does stuff for them. And that's what the book of Obadiah is about. And so what we see is the destruction of Edom in verses 1 through 9 of this single chapter book. And in this chapter, uh, in these first nine verses, the destruction of Edom is powerful. It is inescapable. God says this, that even though, and you have to understand, the nation of Edom they kinda they lived in the mountainside. They carved their homes in the mountainside. And so God says, even though you thought you were so secure and so fortified and had all these fortresses in the mountains, and though you were so high up, you thought the enemies would never reach you, even though you're as high as an eagle, I'll tear you down from there. I'll tear you down from there. God does care about having justice for his people. God will be the one, ultimately in the end, who deals with those who are wicked. God's people can trust in him for that. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And the reason for Edom's destruction isn't just because God doesn't like them or that they just are not very good people in general. No, it is because of what they have done against his people. Verses 10 through 16. This is a reminder that God, he does see when people persecute his own He does see when people treat his own unjustly. He does understand that they have done wrong, and he will take action for every single individual action that has been done. God is a true God of vengeance in that way. He's not just arbitrary here. This is about justice, and he does care about his own. When we read about the persecuted church, we sometimes become distressed for our fellow brothers and sisters, and we plead for God to take action. Know this, he will. He will. Obadiah says he will. God does. He notices everything. He even warns the enemies not to do that because they will bring stricter wrath upon themselves. But of course they do. And here's what becomes interesting. Look at Obadiah verse 15. If you think this is just about Edom, it's not. It's more than that. It says this, because the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord draws near against all the nations, against all the nations. This is, by the way, the first time in the entire Bible the word day of the Lord is used. The phrase day of the Lord is used. You've probably heard of the day of the Lord before. It's found in the Old Testament, it's found in the New Testament. This is the first time it's used. And what it's a reminder of is that God will have his way ultimately. Not us. We don't take revenge into our own hands, never. But God will. He'll deal with it. And we trust in him. And Israel should trust in him because he is the God of vengeance. And in fact, here's how it'll all end that in verse 17 through 21, Israel will have its triumph in the end. They'll go up to the mountain. God will use them for his glory. And it says this, and the last line is just beautiful. Look at verse 21 at the end. Then the kingdom will belong to the Lord. Then. The kingdom will belong to Yahweh. After he has so dealt with all the injustice, all the wickedness, after he has made sure that his people have triumph and success and vindication, after all that takes place, then the world will know He is the one king, and his kingdom is forever. And that is the nature of his kingdom. When he is unquestionably the honorable, noble ruler who has done everything possible to demonstrate his righteousness, then the kingdom belongs to the Lord. Then and only then. That's what Obadiah says. Israel's wondering, God, did you care? Did you do anything? And in one small book, God says, let me tell you the whole plan from this moment to the very end and I'll tell you how it ends, the kingdom will belong to me. That's how it ends. That's the book of Obadiah. Well, there's another book, Joel. Joel. Joel means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. He is God because he is powerful. And that's actually the theme. Sometimes when we think about books of the Old Testament and prophets, we just say, oh, there's Judgment, and then there's salvation. That's true, but that's like saying, well, in this book, it talks about God. That's very, very generic, and you could say that for every single book of the Bible. This book has words. That would also be true, but that's almost equally unhelpful. What we have in each book is a nuance. A nuance, perhaps, to God's judgment. Maybe it's the vengeance of God, like we saw in Obadiah. Here, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. And that's what we see in Joel. You see, Joel happens, and this is kind of the signifying measure or feature of the book. It happens early on, and it happens right after Israel experiences a locust plague. Joel is stepping onto the scene after Israel experienced a locust plague because locusts, there are two things with locusts. One, they're very devastating, if you've ever seen how, what they can do. Um, I, I saw a picture once of what happens after a locust plague, and somebody captioned the, captioned the picture, the moon, because that's what the land looked like. It just looked totally desolate and bare, and it was also gray, black and white photos, so that, that helped the whole ambiance. But the it was totally bare, totally stripped down, nothing left on the ground, not even a blade of grass. It was just bare, and it was desolate. And that's what locusts do. They're, they're tremendously damaging, but that shows you God's power, of course. But two, God in the book of Deuteronomy says this, that that's the warning sign that more judgment is coming for Israel. God even tells them, This is the warning sign. Sometimes parents tell their children warnings. I'm only going to tell you one more time, and then the judgment is coming. So come downstairs now. We say these kinds of things. Now, unlike parents, God actually follows through. And Joel then, as a prophet, steps on the scene and says, The locust plague came. Wake up, everybody. Judgment is coming. And if you thought the locust plague was bad, and it is, you ain't seen nothing yet. So pay attention. And that is what Joel is about. Understand the power of God in judgment. So here's the wake-up call. There's a recent disaster. The, the locusts, four kinds of locusts, devastate the land. And Joel recounts it. And he actually helps Israel and all of us to understand how devastating that is. We just think, okay, no plants that's a bummer. I didn't like gardens anyway, so it's not that big of a deal. No, that's not how any Israelite would have thought about it, and that's not how Joel wants you to think about it. If you have no plants, if you have no crops, you have no food, so you're already dead. You're already dead. People are going to die because of this. That's the power of God's judgment, but it's not just that. Remember the five kinds of offerings that we talked about? See, this is where the whole Old Testament is interconnected. We said, oh yeah, there's a burn offering and then there's a grain offering. What do you think the locusts ate? All the what? The grain. So at this moment, Joel says, what God is signaling to you is you have no relationship with him. You can't even sacrifice to him. It's over for you. Your relationship with him is cut off. Everyone starts to get very panicky there, Yes? And then God, then he says, Joel, now you understand. This is horizontally devastating relative to your life on this earth. This is vertically devastating because now you realize you are disassociated with your own God in this generation. And he says this, and you haven't seen anything yet because the day of the Lord is coming. Remember the day of the Lord? We just heard about that in Obadiah and now it's repeated in Joel. And the idea is, You thought the day of the Lord was just going to attack everyone that was bad. Well, I have a message for you, Israel. Joel says, you're bad. So it's coming for you too. You need to repent. You need to repent. And so in chapter 2, 1 through 11, the imagery of locusts is used because it's so raw and fresh and devastating. It is used for an enemy army. And here's the climax of the whole enemy army, eschatological end times invasion of Israel. It is this. It says this in Joel 2.11. Yahweh is at their head. He is their general leading them. You never want to be in a situation where God is leading his power against you. You thought the locust plague was bad because it decimated everything. What do you think God will do to you when you're his enemy and he's leading his whole force against you? This is the power of God's judgment. And here's what becomes fascinating. It's this. It's that... In this moment, Joel, and I said he is an early prophet with writing an early book, he gives you the definition of repentance. If God's judgment, and since God's judgment is so powerful, what should you do? How should you respond? And Joel says, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. And by the way, this becomes the definition of repentance for the rest of the Bible. Joel's no minor prophet in this way. He's a major one. Because he defines basic things like repentance. And he says this. I love this line in Joel 2. He says, return, return to the Lord with all your heart. God has never been just interested in external actions. He's never just been interested in your tears. And what does he say? Verse 13 of Joel 2. Tear your heart, not your garment. You want to know what repentance is? You don't put on a show. It's not about just some external presentation. It's not just crying a lot. Can crying be involved? Sure. Can external things happen? Of course. But that's not just or merely what repentance is. You know what repentance is? Is when you tear your heart equally hard. And when you tear your heart so hard because of your grief over sin that you change. That's what it means to return to God in repentance. It's turning back to him. What we look for in believers, young and old, is not just that they feel bad or say the words, I'm sorry. We look that from the inside out, they've been wrecked over their sin to the point where they are turning their life around to God by his grace. That's Repentance. Tear your heart, not your garments. God is never satisfied with a mere show. He is never satisfied with mere externalism. Joel, one of the most profound defining statements of repentance in the entire Bible. Why? Because God is powerful in judgment. He is powerful in judgment. And so that calls for true repentance. But what happens when you really repent? Here's the amazing thing that God says. And he says this, that he's going to restore his people, Israel. All the power used for judgment can be used to restore them. And it's amazing what takes place. They will be materially restored. You say, when is this going to happen? It's going to happen in the end times. You say, why not now? Because Israel hasn't repented yet. And you say, when are they going to repent? That's for a different book. That's, Zechariah is going to talk about that. And we might talk about that too if I stop asking myself questions. So here we go. Israel will be restored in the end times. They'll be materially restored. And we can see that in in Joel 25, 2, 25 through 27. It's wonderful to hear this. And it says this, that he's going to restore all the years which the locusts ate. What's the idea? All the damage that God did before to get their attention, to judge them righteously. Everything that the locust consumed, everything that was consumed by fire, everything that was consumed before, God can turn it all around. And everything that they lost, they will re- be regained. And you say, how can God do that? Because the God who has the power over judgment, she has the equal power over their restoration. And it's not just a material restoration. What's central to this is a spiritual restoration. God says he will pour out his spirit upon all his people, and they will have the most intimate relationship with him. This is the new covenant. In fact, we get a taste of this in the church. Do you remember in the book of Acts? It talks about how God pours out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. Guess what book Peter's quoting from? The book of Joel. Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. We get an element of this. We it's It's starting to be worked out, and we see that. But God will fulfill it in the end, For his people on a national scale. Speaking of a national scale, chapter 3, 1 through 21, you start to see how strong the nation will be because God is so powerful and strong. Have you ever heard of the old song? I think it's Give thanks with a grateful heart, and it says, Let the weak say, I am strong. Do you remember that phrase? That's found in Joel. Let the weak say, I am strong, except it's not used about God's people. Uh, this is one of these songs that takes the Bible out of context, sadly, but it's okay. Not really. But, the, uh, but let the weak say I am strong. It says, God says to all the nations, go ahead, try to fight against my people this time. Go ahead, try to war against them in the end times. Let the weak say I'm strong. Let the person who has no strength, who's just the nerd, take up the battle armaments and join the army get everybody together God says and God says this I will destroy you all to show you that this time I'm with my people before God led the army eschatologically against Israel to judge them but in the end there will be another battle where he leads Israel to conquer the entire world's army everyone even the weak who thinks they're strong they all band together and God says bring it on I fight for my people, and they will win in the end. Why? Because God is strong. Because God is God. Because Yahweh is God, and he is mighty. The way the book of Joel ends just shows you God's might. It says in verse 18 of chapter 3 that God will cause the, the mountains to drip. He will make a new creation where everything is plentiful and everything is abounding. He's going to deal with Edom, chapter 3, verse 19 And that matters because that fulfills the promises of Obadiah. And then in the end, Judah and Jerusalem will be secure. Why? Because it says this, because Yahweh dwells there forever. Yahweh dwells there forever. And so it will be secure. Why? Because our God is strong. And the power he used in judgment to promote and to provoke true repentance is, as a result of that repentance, the same power he uses to restore. It is truly powerful. It is truly beautiful. It is truly wondrous. He is powerful. Well, there's another book, Hosea. Hosea. And Hosea is about God's love in judgment. Here, prepositions matter. This is not just about God's love in spite of the fact he judges. No, this is about God's love in judgment. As I said before, judgment has a lot of facets, it has a lot of nuances. You got to really understand it. And Hosea lives in a time when there's relative peace. It's getting worse, but there's relative peace. And people might wonder, how can a loving God judge? We hear that question all the time. How can a loving God send people to hell? How can a loving God hurt and discipline his own? How can a loving God do all these things? And sometimes, sometimes we depict God's love as it, as it operating in spite of the fact he does these things. Well, yeah, God is this way, but, contrast, he loves. Hosea's message is this. Those actions of discipline and punishment and judgment toward his people are an act of love. It's not in spite of the fact that he loves. It's actually because he loves. That's what we need to understand. Love is in these actions God does this because he loves his own and what we have in the book of Hosea is an amazing theology of the depth and breadth of God's love that's what this book is all about it's astounding chapter 1 through 3 we see it depicted we see it illustrated god commands hosea to take a prostitute for his own wife and she commits fornication. She commits adultery as they are already married and has children of adultery. That is indicative of God's relationship with his own people, Israel. They are adulterers spiritually. They are not faithful to him, but he loves them anyways. He is a loving God. He is a patient God. But here's what God says in chapter two. It's so amazing. God says this, that in verses 6 and 7, as well as verse 14 of the book of Hosea, God declares that he will put up thorns and thistles and walls to block Israel's way so that they cannot find their path to their lovers. And he will tear down and destroy those whom he had or whom they had trusted in and the wealth that they had used to go to them so that they would never go to them anymore. Now, think about this with me. Think about this with me. For Israel, relative to them, when they're being hurt, when they're being blocked <coughs> from pursuing things that they want, to them that would seem very hurtful. To them, that would seem very harmful. But we know from the bigger picture, God is doing that out of love. It's not in spite of the fact that he loves them. It's because he loves them. Because he's blocking them and he's preventing them from going after people who do not love them, who are not right for them. And God, by disciplining them, he in that moment is loving them to woo them back to himself and to prevent them from going astray any further. This is not love in our judgment in spite of the fact that he loves. This is judgment as an act of love and devotion to them. If God hated his people, what would he just do? Let them go. Let them go and let them die. But he doesn't do that. The intervention seems harmful from Israel's perspective. But objectively, it is actually love. And then God says this, finally. When they finally, that is Israel. When they finally realize they have no wealth, they're shameful, they're despicable, they have no recourse, then God says this. Verse 14. Verse 14, he says, I will woo them and I will walk with them And you will come to me in the wilderness, and I will speak to your heart. Say, what's that about? After finally they learn that everyone they had whored after, they were all so wrong for them, God will appear to them, so to speak, in the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Where did they first kind of meet with God after the exodus? They were in the where? The wilderness. God says, Israel, let's start over, you and me. Now you know, I was always the one for you. Now you know, I always loved you. Now you know that you were always supposed to love me and that was the best thing ever for you. Let's start over. He will speak to her heart and draw her to himself. Now that's love. It's love to endure an unfaithful people. It's love to pursue them with all your heart. And it's love after they have disgraced themselves and you've had to discipline them to take them back and start over as if the slate is clean because it is in his son. That's love. That's love. And Hosea tells that story. You have to see it in somebody's life. You have to see it and sometimes depict it in such a radical way to get people's attention. But Hosea doesn't just depict it. He describes it. Chapters four through 14 kind of give you the anatomy of what it means to not love God. Sadly, I think sometimes we do need some lessons on this. What are all the ways? And and we often don't think of sin like this, but we should, that sin is spiritual adultery. The Bible makes that clear. Here's a whole book dedicated to it. What's the components of that? And here's the first component. It's internal. It's internal to the relationship. When you don't know God, you don't love him. Look at Hosea chapter 4 with me. It says this, listen, hear the word of Yahweh, sons of Israel. He has a contention against those who dwell in the land because there's no truth, no loving kindness, and what's the final phrase? No knowledge of God. If I was doing marriage counseling, you know that there's a problem. If somebody gets in and they say, okay, introduce yourself, And one says, hi, I'm so-and-so. This is my husband. And the husband says, hi, I'm so-and-so. I don't even know this lady. I don't know who she is. Do you have amnesia? No. She's your wife. Never knew that. Never knew her. Had no idea. Now you have problems. Don't worry. I've never encountered a situation like that. That's very, very extreme. Except that's Israel's problem. And that can be your and my problem no knowledge of Yahweh. If we asked you, do you really know God? Do you know him well? Do you know and understand him? And you say, I I barely know him. Then how can you love him? How can you love him? How can you love somebody you don't even know and you're not even interested in getting to know? How can you say you love somebody like that? That's God's question. That's God's question. Verse 6, he says this. You've forgotten everything. You've forgotten him. How can you say you know him? My people are people that are like those without knowledge. Because knowledge is strange and they've rejected it. So I've rejected you. And they've done this in all kinds of ways through their actions. They've shown they don't really care. They've engaged in all kinds of types of sin. Every type of people, women and children and husbands and wives. Chapter four, one through 14 demonstrates that. And chapter five tells you, what's so dangerous when you stop knowing God? What's so dangerous when you just carelessly pursue sin instead of actually pursuing the knowledge of God? Chapter five, verse four, it's one of the most haunting statements. Your unfaithfulness, does not allow you to return to your God. Think about that. Your unfaithfulness does not allow you to return to your God. Now you're in trouble. When you don't want to know God, you won't. And that's the problem. And that's the problem. So, what's the solution? Chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. It's so simple. Know God. Let us turn to the Lord. Let us pursue him. He may have struck us, but he will bind us and heal us. He will revive us on the second day. He will raise us up on the third day. You say, wow, that kind of sounds familiar. Raising somebody on the third day. When did that ever happen? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Yes, it's true in this case. Jesus is the proof. That God will raise his people from the dead. In fact, if you want to talk about the most powerful kind of love, and, and I've got to keep going, so I'm just going to say it right here. You want to know how powerful God's love is? It's this. In marriage, which is being illustrated and used as an analogy in the book of Hosea, it's till death do us part. We know that. It's till death do us part. After someone dies, you're even okay, biblically, to marry someone else. It's not considered adultery or sin. Romans 7 is a good example of making that clear. But you know what God says? Israel, you deserve to die. You committed adultery. But I love you so much, I will what? I will raise you from the dead because I love you. And I will make sure that death will not even do us part. God's love transcends any human love. God makes marriage the highest human love to demonstrate the transcendence of his almighty, divine, original love because his love never does us part. That's the power of his love. And so there is great hope. You can repent, turn back to God. Even if death is there, it will never separate you from him. That's how much he loves us. Well, there's another aspect of the problem of love and it's this. It's not just whether or not you know God, that's internal. It's how you treat everybody else. It's external. If you love someone in a marital relationship more than your spouse, we have a word for that. It's called adultery. And so God says this to his people, your problem is this, you love everyone else more than you love me. And that's a good question to ask, isn't it? What do you love most? If you are trusting in other things are seeking other things are pursuing other things outside of God you love those things more than him and that's what chapter 7 is all about Israel's hearts like an oven on fire pursuing other things and so God says I will judge you I will judge you you're you're so corrupt you need to be judged and you're going to find out the hard way that those people that you pursued they're going to hurt you it's chapter 9 verse 1 so don't rejoice and in chapter 10, you're going to find out that your idols, they're just idols. You're going to learn the hard way just so that you understand that you should never love anything more than you love God. But here's the beautiful thing. Just like the first part about our knowledge or lack the love of God ended in hope, so the second part about external love to God, really making sure we don't love anything more than him, it'll also end in hope. God says this, that he did originally love his son, out of Egypt he called his son, and for that very reason, there will be a second exodus. He will redeem them again. And that's what we see in chapter 11. And in fact, what God says by way of illustrating this is he gives them a, a kind of final tale of his love for them. It's, he tells about all that he did for their ancestor Jacob, how he cared for them, how he loved him. And that made all the difference for Jacob in the whole world. And they should have known that God has always loved them. And that love is what makes the difference. And so they should turn to him. And that's how chapter 14 ends. Chapter 14 is, is a beautiful chapter of how one repents to God. And it says this, Assyria will never save us. Egypt was never meant for us. Why? Because there's no one but you, God. And that's true love for God. Hosea is a book about God's love in judgment. He loves his people. He'll even raise them from the dead. Death won't even separate them. He loves them that much. And that's what we see in the book of Hosea. By the way, it's even quoted in the New Testament. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hosea chapter 13 it's about the resurrection. Nahum. Nahum means comfort, and you get comfort from God's words. Uh, Think of it this way. The comfort that we see here is comfort in two ways. Nahum is written right after, or soon after, Assyria devastates the northern kingdom. Soon after Assyria devastates the northern kingdom, people are wondering, God, do you care? Do you care? Second, Nahum is provided and written to provide the ultimate comfort. Do you remember in the book of Isaiah chapter 40, it says, comfort, comfort, oh my people. This is, that word in Isaiah 40 is actually the word Nahum, which is the word Nahum. He's just saying, Nahum, Nahum, oh my people. And so Nahum, the prophet comes and says, I'm that Nahum. And and. It is true, because here's what happens. In the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, Blessed are the feet of those who bring you good news. Have you heard that phrase before? Blessed are the feet of those who bring you good news. You said, I think that's in Isaiah. You are correct. Nahum is quoting from Isaiah. Why? Why? Because the way the Old Testament works is it provides a near prophecy to show you that a far prophecy will take place. If you see God works in the near term in certain ways, then you know what he promises long term will happen. Well, Nahum is the near term prophecy that provides the most comfort because it shows you that the comfort of what Isaiah talks about long term will take place. And so Nahum is all about the destruction of Nineveh. In fact, some people call Nahum Jonah's wish. Because Jonah did not like Nineveh, we know that. And Jonah will finally get his wish. And that's what we see. We see that there is massive destruction prophesied. That, that God's mercy has run out against Nineveh. That's chapters 1 through 2. And we hear even this, that God, and this is striking, he says there will be devastation and de- devastators against his own uh, against Nineveh, and, and that's in chapter 2, verse 2, and you say, okay, what about these devastators? The word for devastators in Hebrew is the word bok bok. You say, what? Why, why does it sound like that? Because the word sounds like the emptying of a bottle, at least in Hebrew. Bok 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 bok. Think about it. And you say, why does God use that word? It's because of how Nineveh will be destroyed. It's the most interesting prophecy ever. If you read chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, it says this, Nineveh will be destroyed by a flood. Hence, bock, 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 bock. but it also says this, Nineveh will be destroyed by fire. Now, what's strange about that? How can you be destroyed in a flood and on the, at the same time your city's on fire? The flood should put out the fire. This is basic. We always put water on fires most of the time. So the idea is, How could this happen? But this is exactly what happens. This is exactly what takes place. Nineveh, under siege by Babylon, is flooded. When the flood occurs, according to ancient sources, it tips over the the altars or the fire incense burners in the palace, and the city burns and is flooded at the same time. It's fascinating. Even old encyclopedias that recount this say, there is no question that Nahum was written early. There is no question that the prophecy of Nahum is correct. And that's it. Normally they would say, oh, there's all these other ways to explain it besides God did it. They don't have an explanation. There's no explanation here. This is such a unique prophecy. It's even dated because if you look at point four on this slide, Nineveh's destruction is inevitable. It's inevitable because there was a city called Thebes and it was destroyed. That dates the time that Nahum was written. And that was before Nineveh was ever destroyed. And so therefore, this is a true prophecy, indisputable. People can't even find the problems with it. It's one of the most powerful apologetic tools, but don't miss this. If God could predict something like that, that was so bizarre, but actually happened, then you know Isaiah and all the promises in it that bring comfort, it'll happen. It'll happen. Nahum is a book about comfort. Then you have Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a marvelous book. It actually means... Hidden treasure. That's what the word means, and it deals with God's purifying judgment. People wonder, is there anything good that can come out of judgment? Yeah, there's a hidden treasure. And you say, what is the hidden treasure? Well, first you see God's terrifying judgment, chapters one through two. Then in chapters two through three, you start to understand how God's judgment does things because because these bad nations that are judged by God, they're removed from the scene and Israel takes their land. Like the Philistines. Do you remember? David and Goliath. They could never conquer the Philistines. They always had trouble. Finally, because of God's judgment, they can take their land. They can, they can start to have what is fulfilled to them. That's a hidden treasure within God's judgment. But an even more hidden treasure within God's judgment is found in chapter three. As God not only judges the nations, He judges His own people. And He says this, that they will have pure lips. They will have pure lips. They will be refined people. And you say, Okay, I understand the hidden treasure of God's judgment is that it chastises and refines us. True, but it goes one step beyond that. You see, in the book of Zephaniah, at the very end, chapter three, verse 17, three, verse 17, it says this, because Israel is a people of purified lips, chapter three, verse nine, and chapter three, verse 12, God will come down and sing. He will come down and sing a song. Now, I like what we do here at Grace in the worship center. I like our music. It's majestic. But could you imagine if the Almighty God came down from heaven and out of joy he sung? I think that might rival Jubilant and Phil Webb a little bit. That's the hidden treasure. God will purify his people, and there will be such beauty and joy that God will sing and it will be the most amazing and memorable moment of all history that's a hidden treasure haggai haggai means my feast you say what number of book is this book 7 hey it's not bad so if we do 2 minutes on this and 3 minutes on zechariah then we'll be you know all good so here we go faithfulness to a faithful god haggai is a simple book the book means my feast and israel is just wondering does our obedience matter Doesn't mean anything. And so God is going to exhort them to obey, specifically in rebuilding the temple. And his job is to show them your obedience matters. It actually means something, it has value and significance. And so there's the exhortation to build. And Haggai and Zechariah, they have a joint ministry. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. And Haggai is a real practical guy, down to earth, and he says. Uh, have you noticed that you guys have built your own house? Maybe you should build God a house. Have you ever thought about that before? Oh, well, that's a good point. And so God is encouraging them to build. And encouraging them to build, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1 of Haggai gives the date. And the date is the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Booths. You say, why does that matter? Well, Haggai's own name means my festival, my feast. And the reason for all this is Haggai is saying to them this, what you do today this day, Feast of Booths, it's going to play into God's plan so that years and years and years and years and years from now when Christ returns, they're going to celebrate a feast on this same day in that year in the future. And if they're going to be able to celebrate it in the temple because of what you did, because of what you did. Your obedience matters. God uses it for glory beyond yourself. And hence, when Israel obeys, they do receive blessings instead of chastisement. And they even advance God's plan forward because among them arises a guy named Zerubbabel who is in the line of Messiah. God is using obedience for his glory. So now you have Zechariah. Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. That's actually the theme. The whole book is about how God remembers all these different promises. Promises that some of us here may not even remember or have forgotten or never studied. And by showing it, God shows to his people, I have remembered, my plan is moving forward. And so God calls his people to repentance and he lists in a series of night visions, a series of night visions, all the promises that he remembers. He rem- and these things have cascading effects. For example, there are these horses that appear that are linked with the horses that you see in the book of Revelation. You meet them here why because God's surveying the scene and seeing should he do something and it's about time to do something and then there are these horns and they're representing the nations and God has a plan for the nations and Israel he's going to rebuild their temple just like he promised in books like Ezekiel and such and most of all God will remember his messiah that his messiah will be king and priest that his messiah will be God and the one who mediates God's presence like a lampstand that's what um, God remembers the most. And so God will chastise his people. He will actually push redemptive history forward. Do you remember the whore of Babylon? Do you remember that individual in the book of Revelation? You meet her when she's a little girl in Zechariah. You meet her when she's a little girl in Zechariah. And that's in one of these night visions toward the end. And so the chariots are ready to go. God's plan is moving forward. You have the Messiah presented in very clear terms you have then okay if god remembers so much what should we do what practically should we understand and here's what zechariah says and he asks on behalf of god when you worship god when you fast when you pray god asks this question chapter 7 verse 5 he says this did you pray for me did you pray to me that's the question When you do what you do, are you just going through the motions or is it for God? That's the real question. Because God remembers, do you remember him? That's the issue. And so in chapters 9 through 14, God says, I remembered all these things. Let me put it into a universal plan. And the plan is broken into two parts, the times of the Gentiles and the time for Israel. The time for the Gentiles, we see that there will be a time when the nations rule, but in Zechariah chapter 9. In that time, there will be a king who comes riding on a donkey who is humbled. Who's that? Jesus. And in that time of the Gentiles, when the nations rule, the key event will be that facilitates the end that this one will be betrayed by his own people and by the own leadership for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11. Who's that? Jesus. And this one, because he's betrayed, God will judge his people by raising up a false shepherd to rule over them for a period of time, who is the false shepherd, the anti-Christ. Everything starts to come together. And in chapter 12 through 14, God says this, and then I will come to my people, and then they will mourn over the one they have pierced, chapter 12, verse 10, and that is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, And who do they pierce? Him on a cross. They will mourn for him. There will be repentance. There will be change. And in the end, God will return on the Mount of Olives. Why on the Mount of Olives? Because the Mount of Olives was always a place where Israel ran away in defeat. It was always a place where Israel ran away in defeat. Now God comes, breaks the Mount of Olives. Why? Because defeat has been swallowed up in victory. And it says this, that there will be one day A new day. Why? Because there is a new creation. And it says this, Yahweh's name in the world will be one. Why? Remember what God said in Deuteronomy? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Finally, that will be fulfilled as everyone in the whole world recognizes there is one. And he is Yahweh. And he is God, Christ, and the Spirit. This is Yahweh. He is one, and there is no other. God remembers. Well, we've covered eight books, some quicker than others, but they're all edifying books, are they not? You learn so many lessons. God remembers. Your obedience matters. He loves. He has vengeance. He cares. You learn all these different prophecies and why they matter, and they all have a reason. And it helps you not only continue to study the books that we covered, but I hope it gives you courage to study the books that are less covered. There are tons of resources available. By the way, even in the bookstore, a good book on Zechariah is a book by Charles Feinberg. And it is in the bookstore for sale. The bookstore wanted me to tell you that. And so it just it just reminds us that resources are available. Dr. MacArthur has preached on so many books of the scriptures, it will help you. Uh, I even have my lectures on the whole Old Testament online for free in case that would help you. There are resources for you to help break the ice with these books, but there is great beauty of discovery. Go to these books. You're missing something in your life if you don't have them, and there is rich truth because this is God's word. Thank you for your time.